Welcome to Everything Imaginable, the podcast for curious minds on KGRA Radio. And here is your host, Gary Cochulillo. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cochulillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show who are executive producers, Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing, Protection Magic, Curses and Crossings, and Hoodoo Justice Magic, senior editor, Amanda Steele, author of Ghosts of Me, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in contributing to the show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how to contribute. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Gary Wayne. Thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you you for inviting me to guest on your podcast, and uh, so excited to be here and very much looking forward to the discussion today. I am too. Um, so you have written a book called Genesis 6, Conspiracy, How Secret Societies and Descendants of Giants Plan to Enslave Humankind. Um, so my first question is, how does the Bavarian Illuminati tie into all of this? Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very good question. And throughout the book i'm going to talk about secret societies i'm going to talk about when they were created which is i think most people find very very surprising and then i'm going to lead people as we go through the book so as we get into the latter parts of the book not no it's a in about the sixth section we're going to talk about secret societies in in depth and we're going to talk about the illuminati so there's a kind of a build-up to get there but you know, the way the book is written, a lot of people, they like to jump ahead and read a chapter and then they'll go back or they'll just read selective chapters because every chapter is a mini story. So mm-hmm. and it leads into the next one we'll, and we'll keep coming up as it unfolds. So you're allowed to do that. So where they fit in is as an extension of the ancient Royal Masonic societies and as a sort of an emergence of a decentralization that's going to take place after 1307 with the collapse of the Knights Templar. And mm-hmm. then they're going to make sure that one central powerful organization for the Royal Masons is not going to be so easily dismembered. And they're going to separate it into a whole number of secret societies all the specific agendas, all answering to them, but still separate and distinct with their own agenda. And Illuminati is one of those, and most people kind of take the beginning of the Illuminati to the Bavarians, but they actually have a little bit earlier start in terms of how they're going to base their society on and and part of the motivation. So they come out of a mid-range level of secret societies. A lot of people look at the Illuminati as being the Illuminati bloodlines and sort of the top of the pyramid as they like to organize the secret societies, even though the pyramids may work with 
organizations reporting, let's say, to the Illuminati, but not to the greater secret society web. So they are sort of mid-range. They are higher than a third-degree adaptive work right of Freemasonry or the 33rd-degree right of the Scottish right. Uh, they would be uh, higher than that in sort of the degree rising scale. So third degree in the old system, which is the easiest way to look at it and just divide or multiply by 11 or divide by 11, depending on how you want to come at it for the 33rd degrees in the Scottish Rite. That gets you to the old third degree level of the York Rite and the old Masonic order and the same degree system that's in the mystical religions. So from above there, you're going to have a couple degrees higher where you're going to oversee multiple lodges of Freemasonry. And sort of at that inner circle as you rise into the fourth and fifth degrees and higher, you're, that's where the Illuminati is going, to, is going to position themselves, but well below other organizations like the Rosicrucians or some of the higher organizations there. They'll have bloodlines, but they won't have as pure bloodlines. But the people at the top of the Illuminati order, they're probably going to be representative of some of the more pure bloodlines. So that's probably a good opening salvo because I probably opened up about 15 or 20 doors that you want to pursue just with that. <laughs> well, one of the, the um, things that I've always wondered is you know, I always kind of looked at them as two separate stories. It's like there's the Bavarian Illuminati story, and then there's the Knight Templar story. But I've always had trouble connecting the two. How do those two sort of intersect? Sure. So one of the things that you want to keep in mind in terms of secret societies is the royal bloodlines or the royal masons and the more ancient mason Masonic order, Freemasonry would be one of the offspring modern organizations like the Illuminati. So you need to understand the royal bloodlines are going to populate the upper end. And you will also want to keep in mind that uh, the Templars were founded by royal Masonic uh, bloodlines. And so they're going to populate again with representatives of the family anything that sort of comes out of the uh, out of the templar organization so when we look at that aspect we also then need to enter in something called the seven sacred sciences which is a huge part of all of these secret societies and we would know those as the seven liberal arts today but these are the seven sacred arts that go back to before the flood according to their history, and which develops the mystical religions and develops the secret societies to develop the knowledge that's going to marry up with the gods that they worship, or as Christians would understand it, as, as the fallen angels. So now that we've sort of laid those two things in there, understand that secret societies are all working on different aspects of that. So you have typically a startup of the, as most history sort of records the startup of the Illuminati starting with some college kids of very wealthy influential nobility class of Germany but they actually take their roots back to uh, from a sort of a motivational route back to the time of Galileo 
and in the in the 1500s with uh, the development of the sciences and the persecution of Galileo and other scientists by the by the Catholic Church and they have to go underground as the enlightened ones and so that's part of sort of the background that these college people who go with the mythos of re-establishing the Bavarian Illuminati in uh, in Germany. And then in about 1770, they're going to merge with Freemasonry and become at that adept level and sort of the inner circle of Freemasonry, with Freemasonry being an entry level to the occult of people who are invited. So they're going to have bloodlines because you just can't just go and join. You have to be selected and they're going to select from the genealogy stock of who you are to bring you in. They may bring in some new money um, to help, you know, continue with the control sort of aspect of the more powerful and introduce them into the cult. Sciences and knowledges are escalating up the pyramid of knowledge, whether it's the third degree in New York, right, or the 33rd degree in the Scottish, right? So you have this Bavarian society that merges later in the 1700s where they get become more powerful. But in the beginning, they're sponsored by the Royal Masonic Societies through the Rosicrucians, who the Illuminati are going to report to. They're sponsored to set up this organization and the agenda that they're provided by the Rosicrucians and the Royal Masonic bloodlines is to, one, is to be anti-Christian, so to bring Christianity down. And then the second goal that they focus on and still do both of these today, they focus on bringing about world government. And that's the purpose for their, uh, their, their establishment. And with the merging of the Templar, not the Templars, the Freemasons with the Illuminati, with the Illuminati being atop, they take advantage of the large system of Freemasonry that has expanded all around the planet at the time of their merging in the 1700s through the English Commonwealth Empire and through the lodges that they've established there and then through the Jacobite movement and into the start of the French lodges after the fall of the Stuart King. So they're going to go, they're going to use those lodges to establish what they call the continental um, uh, lodges and the Illuminati are going to work through there and are instrumental in the French Revolution in terms of propelling and giving it its sort of powder keg aspect and lighting it to to uh, topple the uh, the Catholic supporting kingship of that time. So these are this is one of the organizations that is formed from the fall of the Knights Templar. In the fall of the Knights Templar, there's going to be 33 adepts that are Royal Masonic that were running the Templars and they're still holding together after the fall. And they're going to sit down with the Catholic Church to try and reinstall the Knights Templar organization within the church because they have a specific agenda within the church for their secret society that they want to establish, which was the Templars. We can touch on that in a few minutes. But it's, the, it's these 33 adepts that refuse to accept how the Catholic Church wants to reset up the Templars, 
they become the 33 invisible ones. And from the 33 invisible ones, they establish the Rosicrucians, which is the nexus organization between the lower ranks and the, and the pure bloods. And the Rosicrucians have their own agenda, which is essentially to keep their Gnostic religion alive, keep their history alive, and continuing to ensure that all of the lower level organizations are developing the knowledge of the seven sacred sciences and carrying out their uh, specific agendas. And so they're going to be the ones who are the inter intermediary group that is going to sponsor the Bavarians in Germany to start the Illuminati. Wow. Now, with the Illuminati in Germany, there's one key point. These are young people, I mm -hmm. said. But you have to understand the link between the royal bloodlines because you can't become an Illuminati when you're that young because you won't have gone through the degrees properly unless you're a pureblood. So the purebloods are initiated from childhood. So they are adepts before they even become teenagers. They just can't accept that adepthood title somewhere between 25 and 30 years old. So... These were already adepts, and that's why they were selected, because within the families, within the cult, if I can put it that way, or within the culture, they are well above third degree. They're probably fifth, sixth, seventh, and higher uh, being part of the initiation from childhood. So if people are always wondering, well, how could people that young form a secret society that's so high up? It's because they were purebloods. So that's kind of the quick overview of the connections between the Templars, the Rosicrucians, the Illuminati, and Freemasonry. Wow. So why did the what is the issue between the Templars and the Catholic Church? Um, like, you know, I've heard different stories. I've heard the um, stories that the, you know. The, the issue was that the Templars were worshiping a divine feminine. You know, I've heard stories where they're Luciferian. I've heard stories that their main focus was on John the Baptist. Which one is it? Or is it all of them? Yeah, there's a little bit of everything in there. So when the, when the Templars were set up, they were set up by some very famous uh, adepts. And most people go for the standard misinformation of the of the mythos where these are poor monks that um, are going to form the society. They're not. I mean, these are all wealthy first and second sons of kings of specific regions that are forming the, the Knights Templar. And two of them are Benedictine monks within the church but again uh what people have if they're not familiar with the sort of noble elite in terms of the control over the societies over time understand that even the roman church is dominated by the bloodlines and most of the uh the, the higher level priests and things are of the bloodlines and people might be familiar with the term the black nobility that runs the church and how many popes come from them and things like that that's another rabbit hole but understand that 
these Cistercian Benedictine monks were of the bloodlines as well and connected to the other families that were part of the members. So a couple of the names that people might be familiar with, and I won't go through all of the names um, for the people, but um, the, you've got the most famous ones, which are de Peon and de Bouillon, who are sort of thought to be the ones who are the founders. And, and, it's, and it's true. And de Bouillon's going to meet with uh, Cal Calabrian monks, which is another Gnostic order. Most of the monastic orders within, within Catholicism are Gnostic orders, which is the religion of the secret societies. We're going to meet with the Calabrian monks and decide to establish the Templars um, before he crosses over to Jerusalem with their agenda to excavate Jerusalem and bring back all sorts of things that we can talk about if you want down a little bit later. And so he's going to meet up with uh, Huda Peon there. And then another fellow that is quite famous is Anjou that people might uh, be familiar with. And that's the Anjou of the Lorraine region as opposed to the Anjou of the Corsica and the Italians. And this is from the, the Lorraine area where those three kingdoms are. But it's this Anjou family that produces the Plantagenet kings and the Plantagenet of England as well. And the same bloodline that the presidents tend to take their genealogies back to uh, within the United States. But again, another another rabbit hole. So these are the, the founding members of, of the Knights Templar. And their ruse for being established is to protect pilgrims as they're pilgriming to Jerusalem to worship. But that's a ruse because in 1041, and the Knights Templar were formed in 1090 and sort of officially in 1099 and then given a papal bull in, in um, 1128 at the Council of Troy, sponsored by the Benedictine monk, this monk, the second most powerful person in Catholicism and one of the relative bloodlines and related directly to uh, three of the, of the, of the founding Knights Templar. His name is uh, St. Benedict, who gives them the, the cross and writes their constitution for them and basically makes the case to, to give them a capable to the, to, uh, to the Pope and the Catholic bishops. And so they're set up on a rouge, and they're there to do two things. They're there to excavate Jerusalem and bring back the treasures and the knowledge that they do bring back. And it's going to be an organization that's going to work within Catholicism to bring about their long-term goal, which is to bring about, um, and it's recorded in Article 4 and 18 of the Secret Rule of the Order, and it's in the Book, to, book of Baptism by Fire and the Secret Set Down by the Master Ronsolin. It states in there that the new Babylon was the true Templar agenda, and that was to establish a world religion which is going to eventually set up a world government from within the roman catholic church which is the you know catholicism is already defined as the universal church and so when you had the downfall of the knights templar in 1307 then that's why the 33 invisible rosicrucians were trying to reestablish, but went on their own with separate organizations and then re-entered Catholicism a few hundred years later with the Jesuits who still report to the Committee of 300 and the 
Rosicrucians to this day. So that's their agenda from within the church. And that's the agenda that was given to the Jesuits later was to get control of the banking, which they established banking within the church. The Templars did. And the Jesuits also took over after their founding and to control the education and the literature and the propaganda that's coming out of the church and to prepare it to be the new Babylon, which is the same goal that Ignatius of Loyola received through his merry vision to change the church from within and to set up it as the true religion. So it's the same agendas that the Jesuits haven't inherited that the, that the Templars had, and we can go through some of the history of the Jesuits if you want, but understand mm -hmm. they're one of the offshoots of, of, the, of the Knights Templar. So they've been adversarial all along because these are the Gnostics that are molded within Western Christianity, whether it's the, the royal bloodlines or it's the monastic orders within the church. And they're trying to use that as a vehicle to bring about their, their form of the world religion. Wow. So this goes back really far. This has been going on for a long, long time. Um, is the idea of having one government, one world religion, something that's bad? Or is it, is it, like, like, is it a negative um, well, it's motivation? Or is it good. a positive motivation to just take the end war and greed? Yeah. Well, that's kind of how it's going to be pitched, is that in order to survive, in, in order to prevent our, the human race from destroying itself from the face of the earth, it has to come together with one religion and one government to, to ensure that that doesn't happen. That's the same thing that happened at Babel, which is why Babylon religion of the end time gets its allegorical roots from Babel and Nimrod, who is the first archetype of Antichrist. The problem when you, is when you center that much power amongst 10 kings, which is what they want to set up, um, and set up like the sort of the helm of world government and the golden age before the flood. It's something that they call the New Atlantis that Francis Bacon wrote a book about and is significant allegory within the occult religions and within the secret societies, they want that new Atlantis, which is 10 descendant kings from their parents, um, that they will take back before the flood, but also to their original patriarchs after the flood as well. And again, that's a whole different topic, but they are trying to put one of their, what I would call dragon messiahs on the world throne. And to do that, they need this universal religion in place. And to do that, they want to be able to, by doing that through this religion, is to create a scenario where the world acting, acting together, speaking as one language, worshiping one pantheon of gods, following one set of government in harmony can vibrate or evolve to another level of consciousness or godhood, depending on how they want to define that. So they're going to pitch it and everything that's good. But the problem is, is that you're going to get an antichrist type figure, as Christians would understand it from how they're going to pitch and how people are going to accept Antichrist, he is going to be a very good, powerful individual that's going to lead humankind into the age of Aquarius and into the 
Fourth Reich as it would have been, or it might be, I should have said, as opposed to the Third Reich, what the Nazis were promising, that's a thousand-year reign. So what it is, it is a mirror image of the same thing that's being promised in the Bible, but through the polytheist religions. So there would be some type of genocide that would be included in all this changing of power? Not at first. Not at first, but as they get more and more control and as the ten kings come together that are going to be representing the ten regions that the Club of Rome set up in the late 60s, and people can Google that and pull up the map. And that map probably will change a little bit, but it's essentially the template that the Club of Rome that answers to the Committee of 300 because they're run by pure bloodlines and then they'll bring in some lower bloodlines to, to work in the Club of Rome. Their agenda is to sort of pull this thing together as they think that we're approaching the end time. They need to get this empire, this world government set up. So as that happens, and if you can imagine that this universal religion will declare the same kind of primacy as what Roman Catholicism did uh, when it started to use the Inquisition and to uh, slaughter people because they wouldn't convert to their religion, or what Islam you know, has done to a certain degree as well, that's what's going to happen. You're going to get faced with a choice. You either are part of the New Age or you're an enemy of the state. So at first you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be canceled, then you're going to be arrested, then you're going to be in jail or in concentration camps, and you're going to be persecuted, and then comes genocide. It always follows. And that's what happens when you get too much power that's too centralized. And people are going to be looking at those who are saying, I don't want to be part of that religion, or I don't want to be part of the world sort of global state, they're going to be considered enemies of the state, enemies of the Messiah, enemies of the of the universal religion, and that's sort of the accelerant that you need for genocide. They're just going to make them disappear. If they can't, if they can't convert them, if they can't brainwash them, then they'll get rid of them. Wow, that would suck for me. That's for sure. <laughs> um it's in incredible. Like, in what role does the United States? Well, actually, like, there's two questions here. One is, you know, the founding of the United States seems to be very closely woven with um, Freemasonry and Knights of Templar, and possibly even maybe funded by Templar treasure. Um, so, what role would the United States play in all of this? The United States was set up uh, with kind of two things in mind. The first one is that the Jacobites were losing control over the English throne, and they're going to be replaced by the German Hanovers, which changed their name to the Windsors during World War I for obvious reasons, because they're German and they wanted to be disassociated with them, even though they were still cousins. <laughs> Another rabbit hole. But um, so... The United States is set up to establish a country, nations that are out of the reach of the influence of the Catholic Church, uh, because they look at the Catholic Church as their greatest obstacle to their goals and their greatest enemy. And 
they're going to set up the United States with as as and I'll just back step a step here. If people look at or do any research and do any reading on who many of the founders were or people who signed the constitutions or people who created the constitutions and the laws, a vast majority of them were Masonic, right? So they were sort of lower level bloodlines that were set up uh, in the United States to control the society from the, the from the elite level and were the ones who were setting up the new constitution so that a they could protect their religion from discrimination which is the gnostic religion which is the founder of theosophy which the new age comes out of so you sort of see that this religion that keeps getting renamed is still this ancient religion that goes back into the mists of time in the same pantheon that religion that's all around the world they just have different names for their different gods they're just vernacular names to the different gods, but it's the same gods in the same pantheon. So they wanted protection for that religion because of all of the persecution that the Catholics did. And they, and they wanted to limit Roman Catholicism's power with this new powerhouse country that they were going to be creating. And they were also trying to set up Brazil at the same time. That country kind of lost its way, but they, they actually envisioned two great powerhouses in, in the new world. And so you have this founding that's totally influenced by the secret societies. And so they have the laws that are set up to protect their religion, but with a long-term look to set up a constitution that could be turned against Christianity at the right time, use it as hate crimes to go about that. We're starting to see that starting to come about today. Now, the vision for the United States was to be a platform for how world government might look and how it might work. So it was to be set up as nation states that are going to work with one central government when where the central government would look after certain sort of things. And then at the state level or the country level, they look after all the lower things. So that's the model that you have in the United States. And that's kind of the greater system that they wanted to export to the rest of the world and use that as a platform to prepare the world and lead the world in preparedness to bring about world government. One of the problems with the United States is that the Christian aspect has grown, you know, grew strong in the United States, which will oppose a lot of the occult religions and the occult agenda. And secondly, so powerful that the United States has dominated all the other nations of the world. And so they need to do two things. They need to stop the resistance by those who pose them. And then the second thing that they need to do is lower the power level and status and standard of living of the United States so that you can create this union of 10 groups of nations that the Club of Rome has, has set up. And so you would imagine then that the United States would be leading one of these 10 um, groups of nations, but just as one of ten is how they would uh, like to have that set up. So I used to think it would be just sort of Mexico, Canada, and the United States through the NAFTA organization, and as we saw all these trading blocks being set up. But really interesting with the Brexit thing happening where you have them splitting away from Europe, and they may come back to 
the United States as part of that group, and it may not include Mexico. Maybe Mexico will lead a Central American uh, group, and you may have, in this case, Canada, United States, and Great Britain, and probably a whole collection of Caribbean islands and a few other collections of smaller sort of states that might want to go along with that, that group. So when we talk about those 10 kings, you would have, in this case, likely the United States sending a representative for that group. But as the Brits might come into that, and it's something I'm watching very, very closely, it may go back to their roots that they'll go back to the bloodline, which are so pure with the, with the Windsor family as sending their representative, and perhaps it might be William, um, to this council of 10 that are going to run the world, but subservient to the universal religion, which is part of the prophecy side. Uh, but if you look at the organizational structure, that comes out of history and prehistory, you always have, before the time of Christianity, from the Roman empires before, you have this organizational structure where you have this polytheist religion that works in harmony with the emperor or the antichrist-type figure that is working these great empires in, let's say, lesser empires all around the world. But it's always part of that organizational structure where you have that dualistic, polytheist, mother goddess and god uh, pantheon structure that is working in tandem with the king or the emperor who is the divine representative on the earth of their parents, which they believe they're offspring of the gods and the demigods. And so when you hear the, the term divine right to rule that the Stuarts used, and King James in particular made it famous, they believe they get that right to rule as being the offspring of the gods, and that's the bloodline and the nobility elite that have ruled since the flood, and before that ruled um, this, in the same way before the flood. Wow. Um so is this something actually I want to ask you one more thing about America first um, one of the characters that always seems to play a large part in the founding of the United States but is not in the um, Constitution or Declaration or Independence is Sir Francis Bacon is he involved in this? Oh in, in such a large way that it's one of those missing pieces of history that's there if people want to search it out. So Francis Bacon is one of the more uh, famous and infamous, depending on your perspective, individuals in the last thousand years or, or more. And he was the advisor to Queen Elizabeth and then to King James. And so he crossed two of the major sort of kingships and transitions from the Tudors to the Stuarts. And he was educated by some of the most powerful adepts of the time. And he becomes that great adept. And so he writes um, a book called The New Atlantis that I was talking about, where he imagines this universal religion and this universal uh, uh, government that is working in harmony with the universal religion and science is being developed and working 
in harmony with this religion. And this is the inspiration. And he has his painting still hung in the entrance to the, uh, to the Royal Society building home office in, in London. And because he's the one who inspires the Royal Society to redevelop the sciences, to honor the pantheon of gods, to not give the God of the Bible credit for anything, to lead people away from God, and to honor their gods of the pantheon in everything that they teach and everything that they build through the sciences. And so the Royal Society is founded by Rosicrucians and Freemasons, but he's He's the sort of intellectual dynamite that leads to that House of Solomon, as he writes about in, 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 the, in the New Atlantis. And so he's the inspiration for it. He's also the one who convinces Queen Elizabeth and King James to develop the New World. And that is going to be the basis for the control, because you have to imagine that King James is being initiated since childhood as a royal mason. And so when you see images of him being initiated in the Lodge of Schoon, that's just ceremonial because Freemasonry comes to England with him and he is higher than a first level, uh, third degree adept. I mean, he's, he's not just coming into the mysteries. He's been taught since childhood. And he writes two books called, I won't give the full name, but it's on demonology and the occult religions. He's that deep into this this religion and the secret society and so he is uh sponsoring freemasonry and he is working with francis bacon and they're going to set up the the exploration of the new world and, and getting it established to bring about this world government so he's the intellectual dynamite for the modern wedge of how do we bring about world government and the universal religion and, you know, he held such powerful sway over the rising English empire and had so much influence in so many different areas, including the writing of the King James Version Bible, where he receives the final copy from the, the elite who are mostly, you know, basically secret society members and, and, uh, high-level church people who are still part of the bloodlines who are writing it, and he is able to edit it for about 10 months before it's going to actually be produced. And so within there, you get some changes in there, um, whether or not it was done by Bacon or it was done by the other writers. For example, is the unicorn that's in the Bible. It's just as one example, and it's one of those markers that they have in it. The unicorn is not this imagery that we're presented with today as you take unicorn back to the hebrew word it's not this playful little horse with a horn it's actually a wild ox or a bull but the unicorn is on the stuart dynasty's coat of arms along with a lion and the unicorn is an animal that was not on the ark because it wasn't pure it was seemingly created with the knowledge that they developed before the flood and this is another rabbit hole but just to sort of give a sort of the the platform for what i'm talking about the knowledge before the flood was greater than what we have today and we're just catching up to that uh, so we need to keep that in mind so 
the ability to create these fabulous beings that are recorded in polytheist prehistory, I think actually took place. And unicorn was one of those. And the unicorn uh, was quite large. It was huge with one horn. And the horn was so strong and powerful that it could gore and slay an elephant with one staff. And it was the horse that the king's the demigods, the offspring of the gods, rode into battle. And it was white, and there's a few other colors on it. We'll go through into all the details. And it's also understood in the occult societies that this being is has an important role, either as some kind of being, as, as in a god, um, or some other important meaning within sort of the hierarchy of the occult religions. And I, and I kind of go either way on it because you have lion gods and you have bull gods. You have all sorts of gods. So there's no reason why you couldn't have had a god that was shaped like a uh, unicorn right. that also had these physical beings that looked just like them. Mm-hmm. Through, but they rode them. And this is the genealogies that are encoded into the coat of arms that the that the royal families have. And so the lions would go back to a god like Mahis or Nergal and the offspring warriors and Nephilim and giants that they produced, and which we would know as the demigods in the first generation after that. They take their genealogies back to them. Hmm. How about Albert Pike? Well, Albert Pike is, is, is an American... Um, Freemason, so he's at least third degree, he's probably higher, probably about fifth degree. Uh, he and Albert Mackey are some of the, are probably the two most famous and influential ones, and it's under Pike where you get the establishment of the Scottish Rite in um, North America for the Freemasonic Society. So he's quite influential in the South and the expansion into the rest of the United States. But I would say Mackey was more influential in terms of what he recorded, what he wrote about. Uh, But certainly if you want to get sort of a direct line to what um, Albert Pike was, uh, what he believed and what the secret societies believe, I mean, he puts it right out there that, you know, the God that they worship is Lucifer and understand Lucifer is an Italian word inserted into an English translation Bible only and uh, translated from a Hebrew word. So you have a Hebrew word being translated into English by using an Italian word. And so the, the actual word is there is hail L, which is probably the angel's name that you should uh, be using. But anyways, that's the god Lucifer that he says that Freemasons worship, and he is a good god, an angel of light, as the Bible says he likes to masquerade as. And that, you know, the knowledge that you're going to learn at the adept level is going to overturn every um, preconceived notion that you have. And he is one of those key 1800 individuals from an American perspective who is uh, working with the other adepts around the world because he's kind of representing the United States and in so many cases, uh, the American point of view in terms of how the world is to be shaped. So he's an important individual and has wrote 
things that if you want to get to the heart of what the agenda is for the secret societies, you need to learn about Albert Pike. <laughs> so, um, actually, how there's another American I want to ask you about, William Butler, William Butler Yeats, the poet and writer. He, he was also heavily involved with the occult too, wasn't he? he yeah, he was involved uh, through the Rosicrucians and the Rosicrucian writing societies um, and a proponent of the early formation of social masonry in England and a proponent of the Nazis. And one of those individuals that is sort of underrated to who he was and how influential he was one of these sort of interesting things when we get into the literature aspect of this and part of the web of the secret societies is that Francis Bacon, he had founded two literary societies. One was the uh, uh, Knights of the Helmet and the other one was the Spear Shaker Society from which a lot of people think William Shakespeare takes his name from and that Bacon in that line of thought was the actual Shakespeare writer and he was sort of a created image sort of guy who published the plays because he was too high up to be involved in that kind of writing type of thing. So, But anyways, he developed those literary societies as a Rosicrucian. Um, to develop the literature in English or the language of English to carry on the history that's wrote in all of the literary things that are written, whether it's Shakespeare, it's nothing but a history of the bloodlines and, and the religion. And so that is sort of an MO that I would look at in terms of what a literary society would look like. So Yeats is part of this literary societies that are writing the history and keeping the history of the polytheist religions and the bloodline families alive. So to give a good example of how that sort of connects and a better idea of what I'm talking about, if you take uh, Lewis and Tolkien, who are going to become part of the Golden Dawn Society that Yeats is uh, connected to as well as a Rosicrucian, and um, Alistair Crawley, um, you, you start to see some interesting connections. And out of the writings that Lewis and Tolkien are going to learn from the Inkling Society that's set up at Oxford, uh, they're going to write things like the Narnia Tales, the Lord of the Rings, and write about all of the occult history and the imagery and all the different beings out of their history because they're being taught the craft of this literary craft to write what they call a fairy tale, which has a very, very extraordinary story on the surface, but underneath is the is the true story and meaning which only the adepts can understand. And that goes into all sorts of things within the arts. That's why you might uh, you know, be familiar with the seven arts. And Warner Brothers, for example, was the Warner Brothers seven arts. Arts and sciences are interchangeable as a term in terms of the knowledge and the and, and the craft. And a lot of people will say, but, you know, Tolkien and Lewis, there's no proof they were Freemasons. And that's absolutely true. So how could they be part of a Rosicrucian society, which is higher than Illuminati, 
and at such a young age? Well, they're purebloods. That's how. Uh, and we talked about that a little earlier. Mm-hmm. I have a uh, six-part series on Tolkien and Lewis, which talks about the language that they use, the characters that they're using in their stories. And then in um, five and six in the parts, actually show you their bloodlines and show you where they take their bloodlines back. So they were initiated from childhood, which is how they were permitted to be in the Inkling society. And so when we talk about secret societies and their agendas, this is part of the Rosicrucian agenda that we talked about earlier, where they want to keep their religion and their history alive. And they do that in uh, literary devices, just as the Freemasons will focus on masonry, which is the fifth science, which they use interchangeably with uh, geometry and masonry comes out of, they will tell their taciturn stories in stone, in the architecture that they build. And that's why you have you know, degrees in university and all of the sort of the Greek and the Roman type of architecture and some Egyptian thrown in there for good mix because they're, they're honoring those past pantheons and the history and the gods with their work. And that's what they try and do with all of the seven sciences is to honor their pantheon as gods, again, as we talked about earlier. So with all this, do they believe, um, because of the bloodlines and the bloodlines that they originate from, um, like something like similar to what Hitler was thinking about an Aryan race, like they're supreme above other people? Yeah, they do. And so... Let me connect some dots here, because if people haven't heard something like that before, then it, it takes a, a, a little bit of connecting some dots. So I mean, everybody knows about Hitler was trying to create the new man, this blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Aryan race. And he was ahead of a left-wing socialistic party, the National Socialism, even though um, the left has rewritten them to be Aryans and, and Nazis of the right wing. That's a complete rewriting of history. He had a, a socialistic government. And what they're trying, we're trying to recreate was through genetics and interbreeding is to recreate the purity of that ancient race. And they were also believed in something that the Rosicrucians believed in, which because they inherited it through the creation of the Nazi party through the secret societies. Again, that's a one itself, but it's this term called real. It's something in the blood and something that's passed on in the blood that if they could backwards engineer, which they're always trying to do, you could recreate the purity and the demigod stature of their ancestors, which were the Nephilim or the Raphaim. And if people haven't heard of that term, those are the giants out of the Bible. And they're known by different names all around the earth, whether it's the Miocene in China or it's the uh, Daitria in India or the Zabalba and the Kishamaya or the heroes and the titans of Greek mythology or the Anunnaki of Sumeria and on and on and on. These are the same beings or the offspring of the gods and they're thought to be these great giants and they look just like the gods that produced them. So you can imagine a few different looks but that's another 
but that's another rabbit hole. So when we look at um, who they believe they came from, they do believe that they came from the gods out of prehistory, and that's how they received their divine right to rule, and that the, those bloodlines have controlled and maintained those dynasties and the noble elite ever since. So they do have this connection that goes back into prehistory that they actually keep the geneal genealogies on. And so as technology develops, there's another wing that is going on in terms of this new man aspect that can you create people who live longer with greater intelligence to become like the demigods or is there going to be another incursion or somehow that these original giants and there's a whole bunch of different mythoses and mythologies and legends out there that they're in status stasis they're in the earth they're in antarctica they were taken off the earth that they're going to be coming back for this end time or is it going to be the technology that is being developed to redevelop them or are the fallen angels who aren't in the abyss going to be recreating these giants that are going to be populating the end time in this world government or is it going to be the ones that are released from the abyss in Revelation 9 that are going to be recreating these types of beings because that's how they went into the abyss for, for those crimes and their crimes against humanity and for their crimes against the earth because they corrupted the entire earth. They were sent to the abyss until the end time when they're going to be released. So um, you've got a whole bunch of different things that are going on. So yes, you have a euphemized way of advancing that new man technology today that Hitler was trying to develop. And then you also have the sort of parallel lane that there could be a resurgence of these beings somehow, some way um, that are going to enter in. I don't know whether that's going to happen, but I do know the end time is going to be like the days of Noah. And he lived both before and after the flood. Giants were created both before and after the flood. And people, if they're not familiar with this, they won't believe how many times giants are actually mentioned in the Bible. They just don't realize what the names of the tribes are um, and who they're talking about. For an example, you have, you know, like the Zamzuzim, which were part of the Raphaim. Raphaim is the male plural for Rapha for giant, and they're distinct from the Nephilim that are recorded as the giants in Genesis 6-4 that were created by the sons of God or the angels. So anyways, a quick sort of run over on that. But all of this is coming to an excess point as they try and bring about the universal religion and world government, their dragon messiah, as I like to call them, and preparing the people to enter into a, a millennial reign or this new age of the false messiah. Wow. You know, it, it, it's strange because, like, like, for me, you know, just listening to it from an objective view, it's like, Okay, you know, one government, world peace, like the stuff that they're selling is good, you know. But then on this other side, you know, they got um, genocide, genetic manipulation, world domination, and, and all these negative yeah. aspects of it. It's always it. It's always like that, you know. It's like knowledge. Knowledge is neither good nor evil. It's how it's used. You know, world government mm -hmm. isn't necessarily evil, but you create that opening for a select few to control and turn it into evil. 
and have unlimited power. So you always have that dual edge cutting, you know, double edged sword that you have to be careful with as anything we do or develop on this earth, because typically what is developed or what is put in as law will be abused. Right. Hmm. So where is the, the beginning of these bloodlines? Does it go back, you know, to like Babylon? Or is it going, is it, or is it all coming out of Atlantis? Both, because you have a flood to take into account. So in over 500 cultures in all continents around the world, except for Antarctica, and who knows what we're going to find there down the road, uh, you have a testimony in the cultures of the Great Flood. In all those cultures you have before the flood, the gods, fallen angels as Christians would call them, went to human females and created the demigods or the giants or the Nephilim or the other names that I was using for giants um, a few minutes ago. And they usurped the kingships. And they come about in about the sixth generation, according to the Bible chronology and polytheist versions. There's some around before that. And they partner with the seven sacred sciences, which are developed by the Canaanites. And this knowledge is in Enoch, son of Cain. And if people aren't familiar biblically, there's two Enochs, one son of Jared that was taken to heaven because he was so holy, and Enoch, son of Cain in the second generation, who inherits the knowledge Cain learned from Adam, who learned the knowledge in Eden according to Freemasonic history. And then Enoch develops this knowledge into the seven disciplines that we talk about as the seven liberal arts today, and they start to develop that knowledge. And then by the sixth generation, they're producing in um, a level of knowledge and a level of working and honoring of the fallen angels that they present their daughters or vice versa. They just take the, the daughters, the fallen angels, the seraphim, the watchers, whatever you want to call them, and procreate with these females and create this demigod giant race. And you set up this organizational structure that I was talking about earlier of demigod kings, this polytheist religion, in partnership with the descendants of Cain and the fallen angels that led the antediluvian world into the first apocalypse by water, which we know as the flood. Somehow, some way, giants crossed the flood. Whether or not somebody falls where they survived on an ark, like in um, the Epic of Gilgamesh, where Atnapishtim is uh, the sort of the giant equivalent to Noah, and we know that because Noah's a human and we get his genealogy and up that patient is two thirds God and one third human. And he's got, and he's the offspring of gods and a human female and his whole family are giants. And when we talk about antediluvian giants or before the flood giants, they're at least 20 feet tall, maybe as high as 40 or 50 feet tall. Some people say as high as 500, but they're trying, they're trying to punch something in with 300 L's or 3000 L's. That's in the book of Enoch, which is translated in the Aramaic version as 300 cubits. That would be 450 feet. We don't get anything that we can substantiate that they were that big. But from what we can learn is they're at least 20 to 40 feet tall. The giants after the flood are smaller. So there's something distinct and they don't live as long. Um, but they're created in the same way and or 
they survived the flood, as in the Epic of Gilgamesh. But keep in mind the Epic of Gilgamesh creates Gilgamesh and Enkidu after the flood. So it's actually showing a second incursion and a survival of giants. So um, just sort of keep that in mind. And they're both described, uh, Enkidu or Anakadon and uh, Gilgamesh, as uh, two-thirds god and, and, and one-third human and, and produced in the same way. And they become these great kings, like Gilgamesh is the king of Uruk, which is you know sort of sixth generation after the flood. And these are developing the royal bloodlines as we come as we come down through history. And so you have a re I think I fall into the camp of I think there's a recreation after the flood, and those gods who did that also went to the abyss. So when you look at the polytheist pantheon, you get parent gods. Let's say quickly Cronos uh, and Gaia would be um, parent gods of the 10 to 12 that are in the parent gods. And then you, they're replaced by offspring gods like Zeus and Aphrodite and Athena and, and that host of, of Mount Olympus gods. Mm-hmm. But these gods are immortal, so they couldn't have killed them. So I think what happened is that the antediluvian ones, for the reasons we talked about earlier in the show, for creating the demigods and all the crimes against humanity and the crimes against the earth, were sent to the abyss. And then because it's a host of angels and it's like an army, so you would have other ones that would move up in behind. And so typically the the bloodline offspring, and in this case using the Greek example, you have Zeus moving up as being the head of the pantheon where Kronos or Uranus uh, were before that as parent gods. And then they would have recreated giants after the flood. And so you have Zeus, who is, for example, um, the parent of Hercules and a human female, just as Poseidon creates the 10 Atlantis kings from a human female in Clymene. So you get that second incursion also recorded in um, the polytheist stories around the world as well. And I think those angels, those gods also went to the abyss. So the Baals or the Baalim who would have created the giants in the Middle East um, like the Raphaim and the Nephilim, as they're called in the Middle East and recorded in the Bible, Baal was the son of El. So if you just transplant everything I said about the Greek mythology, they rise up because El is the same god as Uranus or Cronus, depending on um, who you're reading on that. Um, and Baal takes over afterwards, but because he creates the Raphaim, he goes to the abyss. And that happens in all the pantheons around the world. So that's who... That's who the bloodlines go back to is these giants. And after the flood, you've got King Og, who is the last of the original Raphaim, as he's recorded three times in the Bible as being as such. And his bed was um, nine cubits, uh, uh, nine cubits long and six and four cubits wide. And if I've, if uh, my memory serves me right on that, and what's important about that is that a cubit can be 18 inches or it can be up to 21 inches, but he's a king, so a royal cubit was which, what he would be measured by. That's going to make him um, somewhere between you know, 14 and a half and 16 feet tall And so, in terms of his bed. So you can imagine him being a little bit smaller than that, let's say 12 to 15 feet tall. And 
the bed was six to seven feet wide, depending on the tube again. And these beings were thought to be extraordinarily wide and muscular and fleet of foot and uh, ambidextrous, and they were the ultimate warriors. And so he would have been built as being 12 to 15 feet tall, um, like a WWF wrestler or, uh, you know, an NFL lineman. So very, very strong and powerful. And they're called the mighty ones, which are used several times in the Bible, sometimes for gibbering, which is associated with giants, although it doesn't always mean giant. But also in the Mighty Seven, they're talked about in the nations in, in the Old Testament. That comes from the Hebrew word atzem, and rooted in atzem, and it basically means they had the ability to crush bones with their hands that were so strong. And so he would have been fast, stocky, and wide. And there's a word that's used in Isaiah 25, which is strong, which goes back to the word as, which is connected to azazel, but that's another um, rabbit hole. And Azaz, which as comes from, or Azaz comes from, uh, means stout, as in strong. And again, that sort of goes to the Hebrew recollection that these things were wide. And Gilgamesh, he was uh, 11 cubits tall, which would have made him, um, let's say, 16 to 19 feet tall. But he was a king, so let's put him more in the 19 feet wide. And he was four cubits wide, so he would have been extremely stocky. These are the bloodlines that the noble elite and the monarchs, whether or not it's the Stuarts or it's the Windsors or it was the Plantagenet or the Anjou or the Merovingians or any of the kings around the world, whether even if it's the Xi family or the Li family because it's the same stock out of the dragon creator gods, they take their genealogies back to the same kinds of gods. And this is a common understood thing around the world with these bloodlines. If they are successful, will they release somehow or bring back the original gods from the abyss? Yeah, I think uh, both. I think they'll they'll try and recreate these um, newly formed demigods. Uh, they're also going to look after the old ones so if people are familiar with the term demon they're usually sort of conflated with ghosts and technically that's true it's just that these aren't the ghosts of humans ghosts are demon spirits ghosts are the bodiless spirits of the nephilim and, and Raphaim, and they have the counterfeit spirit in them because they were created by the rebellious angels the gods of the pantheon and this was a spirit that doesn't come from the Holy Spirit from a Christian perspective. And that when they died, because their bodies were physical, and in Genesis 6-3, God took away the ability to be immortal physical being in the physical world so that the physical body would die uh, or could be killed. And the spirit, unlike humans, where our spirits go to sleep until the resurrections, their body isn't their spirit isn't permitted to go to sleep and it's not permitted to go to heaven. So it roams as demon spirits, just as Jesus dealt with these demon spirits, Legion being the most famous of them in, in the New Testament. And they're afraid they're going to send them to the lake of fire before their time. That's, that's kind of telling you a very good indication as to who 
uh, these demon spirits are. But nonetheless, they're going to want to look after these demon spirits, and they cannot interact in the physical world because they don't have a body unless they possess somebody, but that's not a symbiotic relationship. Everybody knows how demon possession works about. You spit out green stuff, and your neck spins around, and there's a suppression mm -hmm. of the host, and there's a whole bunch of sort of internal violence that's going on. To do it properly, they're going to have to build clones for them. So they'll probably be giant clones for these ones because they would want bodies similar to that they had before. And I would expect them to be part of the end time. I would also expect that the angels who are not in the abyss, because only the worst ones are in the abyss, uh, may recreate giants in the end time. And certainly in Revelation 9, before the midpoint of the last seven years, you're going to have the abyss that's being opened up. And if you look at some of the technology today, they're searching for that. So imagine that the abyss is typically pictured in the earth, in the underworld, but not physically there, but in another dimension. And so the technology that's being developed with quantum mechanics mm -hmm. and with artificial intelligence is allowing them to search in different dimensions all at once with more than single sort of direction that quantum mechanics in its beginning was only able to do. And it needs the AI to do it in all sorts of areas so that they can find out where the abyss is. And they want to open up that abyss to unlock their gods of history to come back in the end time. Somehow, some way they're coming back. Either God's going to send an angel down to release them or they're going to find a way to get them out. I'll leave that for... What, how, you know, what people want to believe as to how they come about, but they're going to be released in, in, in the end time. So those ones are already guilty of creating Nephilim and Raphaim. I think we'll probably do it again. Hmm. <clears throat> again, it's just another conundrum. You know, it's like we, things are being, going to be restored back to the original order, but we're all kind of used to this one. Yeah, it's it's going to be it's going to be change, but I mean, we're living in an age of um, you know rapid change, mm -hmm. and it's going to continue to move in that direction. And everything that's sort of happened moves that agenda ahead. And it doesn't matter who's leading the government; we still end up moving in that direction. And so, it continues to march in that direction. And I think. You know, as we go, as we get closer, as we see more and more things, you know, arising that are just awful, like cancel culture, uh, which is a euphemistic term for perhaps how I would express it, um, is going to create some reactions. Eventually, people are going to stand up against it. And that's when it really gets problematic. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, did reptilians play a role in this? I always hear a lot about that. Well, reptilians are part of the alien mythos, but they're also part of our history, according to polytheist accounts and biblical accounts. Now, there are different kinds of reptilians. Um, so if you can imagine the Watchers, we'll start sort of at the top end of the reptilian um, hierarchy, if we can put it that way. The Watchers, they show up four times in the book of Daniel as well, even though they're called the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. 
the sons of God are angels. These are a specific kind of watcher, specific rank of angel. These are the seraphim that are coming from before the throne. And they deal with religion and they deal with government. And they deliver the messages and the, and the orders as the divine representatives of God. So you can imagine in the rebellious gods or the rebellious angels that angels from every rank would have rebelled to be part of this hierarchy of the rebellion. So the watchers in Genesis 6 are the seraphim. The seraphim are, are ministers that work before the altar of God with six wings. And the altar of God is where the stones of fire are. And so... Seraphim were fiery, they're called fiery seraphim angels because they worked and ministered before the altar. But they also had a face of a viper or a snake. And they are called a serpent and or a dragon. And in this case, an angelic dragon as opposed to a physical world dragon, which I can touch on in a few minutes as well, if you like. So these are the procreators of some of the giants. The seraphim angels because they create they they in order to, to have sex to produce the, the offspring as opposed to creating it through dna technology they needed to take a physical form and they needed an oikotarian which is the habitation in jude 1 6 or the house in heaven in, in corinthians and that's a dwelling place for the spirit so in Jude 1, 6, it talks about them leaving their habitation, their, their oikotarian in heaven, and to interact in the world. They can be in the world as an opalescent being, but to be a physical being, they need a body and a soul. So the soul and the, and, and the spirit merge and operate the body. And in Christianity, and I'm Christian, so just so everybody knows my biases here, uh, you have uh, those three components. And... It's the spirit part that comes from heaven. Just as Jesus said, that he has many mansions for a house in heaven for Orcaterian in, you know, after the resurrection. And so when we look at um, these physical beings taking physical form, they're going to have a DNA. And they're going to reproduce with human females with a physical body, with a DNA that gets passed on. And these physical offspring are going to not only be giants, but they're going to look like their parents. So now if you can imagine other types of gods that we talked about earlier, whether or not it's like Nergal as being a lion god, and you have heard about the lion men, or if you got Anubis as a god in Egypt, and you've heard about the dog men or the dog Nephilim or the dog warriors, some of it starts to make some sense in terms of the consistency around the world to this sort of premise. And we get lion men in the Bible. We don't necessarily get dog men, but we get references to dog in very odd ways. And then there's another kind that is the, just to throw it out there, there's the, uh, there's a few other ones too, but the main ones would be the bird one or the raven one, um, which were, you know, the Zibalba and or the Anunnaki. And they're just, they're depicted in those sort of uh, bird like, uh, Heads and they're called the Tengu in Southeast Asia, and Zibalba in the Kishamaya, who's and then you'll find might find this interesting. One of the branch of the Zibalba is the house of Kamazots, and if you Google Kamazots, you're going to get um, this image that looks like Batman's 
outfit because superheroes are all based on these ancient Nephilim. Um, and Camazots is defined as the house of, of bats. So it's, you know, it's the bird Nephilim. So that's kind of how they would pass on their traits. And so bringing this, I sort of went down a rabbit trail. Sorry about that. So the Seraphim were the reptilians and they produced Nephilim that looked just like them. That's why the kings of ancient times were referred to as serpents. And that's why you have serpent imagery all around the thrones and serpent gods, because that's the interaction and the offspring. And they controlled the religion and the ruling class. And the other ones were more warrior class. Now, that's one reptilian. They've lost their features through intermarriage. Um, and we... We probably don't have time to talk about why they had to bring in outside bloodlines that would dilute those uh, features over time and their size. But if you wanted to Google Akhenaten and look or go to King Tut Museum on right. tour, go mm -hmm. look at Akhenaten and he's got a serpentine face. And that's like 12 to 1400 BC, depending on whose chronology that you're using. And that's, you know, 2000 years after the Nephilim, if you don't believe in the flood, and over a 1000 years after the flood, as the Bible would time the, uh, the, uh, the biblical flood. So yeah, you start to get the reptilians that are involved. Now, in the Garden of Eden, you have the Nakash or the hash as it's more should be pronounced um, from Hebrew. And this was a serpent. And this was a walking, talking serpent, an intelligent serpent who lost all of those features for working with the rebellious angels to bring down Adam and Eve. And some people believe that some of those were saved, just as some people believe some of the giants were saved, whether or not it was um, off the earth, in the earth somehow. But um, part of the reptilians and they would have been as tall as a camel and just as smart and they're part of that sort of imagery of the of the, of the royal um, icons and coats of arms and iconology that goes with it because they were considered the most advanced being before the creation of Adam and Eve and the Adamites that would, would follow and so they were kind of the rulers of the world before Adam and Eve and I know there's a day six component in there of people as well. They would be above them as well. That's, again, another rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. And so that's another classification of possible reptilians that survive that are working within the hierarchy of the, uh, of, of the fallen angels. And then you have another class in the elementals. And the elementals are typically known as the little people. And out of the gnomes, you would get the gray aliens or the gray fairies. And they looked after technology, um, genealogies, knowledge, and at flying machines and do kidnappings just like the grays and the alien mythos. But the fourth class is a little bit different than the little ones, which are also all different kinds of, you know, three classes that, you know, let's say Tolkien would talk about in terms of his stories, whether or not it's, it's the hobbits or it's the dwarves, and they all have their agenda within the hierarchy. But getting to the fourth one, that's the salamanders. And they are taller than the um, elementals, which tend to be smaller people, except for the noble elves uh, and the white elves. Um, again, as depicted in Tolkien, only they'd be a little bit larger than that. Um, but the salamanders are also reptilians, and they're also part of the elementals. And they tend to be the ones that 
fit most closely to reports that people might talk about, the ones that they say might be in the Earth. So there's another classification within the hierarchy, lower than the Nephilim, these these four, um, and probably lower than if the Nahash still survives, and certainly lower than the Raphaim and the uh, Nephilim as you look into the physical world, into the hierarchy, and then transition into the God hierarchy or the fallen angelic hierarchy. Wow. I did not expect this Illuminati rabbit hole to cover so much. <laughs> this That was amazing. This is amazing. Um, I do have to wrap this up, but you definitely have to come back again. We have to do a part two on this. Yeah, because we're just skimming the surface. I'm covering so much material, but yeah. <laughs> it's that size of, uh, I, I was going to say rabbit hole, but so many rabbit holes. And, you know, and as you go down one, it, you could go in a thousand different directions, but they're all connected. And that's the thing that people, uh, I what I try and get across to people is take a step back and see some of the connections. And if you're thinking that something's not right, and why are things the way they are? Um, you need to learn about some of this stuff because it's all there in plain sight. You just have been brainwashed not to see it. And you've been brainwashed since childhood. And it's hard to take off that sort of preparedness. But they're preparing you for what they want to bring about. So it's important to make choices. And whatever choices you make, make clear choices. And that's what I try and get people to do is is to understand what's going on, plant some seeds, and uh, you know, make decisions for yourself because we're all going to have to decide things down the road. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we don't know how it's going to turn out, though. <laughs> it's a lot of moving parts. Um, yeah, a lot of moving parts. Um, for, for Christians, they have one view, and I, I tend to fall into that view in terms of how things turn out. But from a polytheistic view is they're not sure how it turns out because when we talk about the dragon messiah that they're all waiting for, it's, all, it's part of all the different cultures, whether it's the Mahdi of uh, Islam or um, Lord Maitreya of Eastern religions, they're all expecting their messiah. And so there's rivals that are coming out of all of these bloodlines around the world. And so nobody knows from a polytheist side who's going to be the one um, who becomes the ultimate world dynasty. And if you've seen the Highlander movie where there can only be one, that's an mm -hmm. allegory from the fairy side of the bloodlines, which is an allegory just the dragon bloodlines or the raven bloodlines, the fairy and the owl bloodlines. And specifically the fairy, they're that's the quickening process that they're talking about in terms of the killing of these great heroes and these bloodlines, but there can only be one of them that's going to rule. That's the allegory that they're covering off in that story. Hmm. It's hidden everywhere. Incredible. It <laughs> is. It's in all of our entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's everywhere. We definitely have to, to cover more. <laughs> So before we wrap it up, where can my listeners find you and find your book? So the best way to get a hold of me 
um, or to find me is on my website. And that's the Genesis6Conspiracy.com with the number 6Conspiracy.com. And on the website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. It's not a small read. You will not be able to read it quick. There are no sentences that have empty words in there. It's filled with information all the way throughout. But you'll get a good feel for whether or not it's the book for you or not. And if you wanted to buy that book, you could get a signed copy from uh, clicking on the buy now and going over to get a signed copy section. Or you could link over to barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com or amazon.ca and buy from there. Um, or you could link over to the Kindle version and get a copy there as well. So lots of ways to get hold of the book. It's available on most online bookstores. It may not be available in every bookstore that's out there, but it's distributed by Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania. So if you want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, then they can order it in on one of their orders coming in. And so it's stocked uh, by Bookmasters in Pennsylvania. And if you wanted to ask me a question or get a little bit of information on some of the things that I talk about, because um, on, on most things I have documents that I supply at no charge for people, there's a contact the author section there. So if you wanted the six-part series on Tolkien, for example, I've got that. If you wanted one on the elementals or the hierarchy of the angelic order or so much on the Nephilim or... Uh, and if you want to know how the Jesuits, I got a four part series on the Jesuits and sort of on and on and on. If I don't have the document, I'll tell you, but just name it by topic because I do three to four shows a week and I won't remember which documents I offered. So <laughs> if you're interested in a subject or want to ask me a question, just get a hold of me through the website or on Facebook under Gary Wayne and you'll see me with my picture in my book and you can post on my timeline and ask a question or you can get a hold of me through Messenger. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm going to post the links to your website and the links to your books in the notes of this episode. So my listeners can definitely check that all out. Um, cause I'm sure they're going to, after this episode, I'm sure they're going to have a whole lot more questions. That's for sure. <laughs> and, uh, thank you for being on. And it was, uh, also oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> it was also great to talk to another Gary. Yeah, <laughs> it's always nice to do that. So, and uh, thank you for inviting me. I, I know I covered a lot of material, but I just love talking about all of this. So, and I want to pro provide enough detail so that people know I'm just not sort of pulling stuff out of thin air. So, anything I talk about, I can back up. So, no, yeah, yeah, that's you are very in depth. I, I've done some interview, other interviews, um, but none of them have have. Um, had the, the um, I don't know what the word for it is, but just the, the, it, the, um, the, just the, all the research that you've done behind it. It's really amazing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit obsessed that way. <laughs> I'm a bit obsessed that way. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks for, thank you for being on and hang on for one second. I'm just going to play the outro. Sure. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable on KGRA Radio. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or email him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs and other merchandise to support the costs of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of his page www.everythingimaginable2020.com Oh yes, 
I almost forgot. You can buy his book, Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need, and it's on Amazon. It'll change your life, because remember, everything that exists was first imagined. Hey, if you love what you listen to, don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe.